0: Hey, welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast. For all of quarter one, all the way through Easter, we are in an in-depth study through the back half of the Gospel of John on the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. For many, the cross sits on the periphery of their minds and lives, but we are persuaded that the cross must be front and center for both our belief and the formation of our behavior as followers of Jesus. We're praying for you. Hope you learn a lot. Enjoy. If you need anything, reach out to info at John 1, 14 through 17.
1: The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, for which God had prepared in advance for us to do. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
0: All right, you may be seated. How are we doing today? Yeah, wow. God is in this place. This is beautiful. Ah. The story goes, once during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world gathered to debate what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered in the room. I love that guy. I'm reading his Space Trilogy right now. I'm in his second book. Ah, oh, he's the man. He wandered in the room and he asked, what's all this rumpus about? Sorry if I just butchered a British accent right there. I don't know if that's how he sounded. I don't even know what rumpus means, but he asked, what's all this rumpus about And he received that the, the reply that they were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among the world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. Grace is arguably one of the most, if not the most, important concepts in the Bible. And if you look up uh, grace in Webster's Dictionary, there are many ways we, we use it today, which is actually really cool. They, the, the still same uses of it in the Bible. Thousands of years, this, this word in its multifaceted ways is still used almost exactly the same as it is today. So for example, you can say grace at the dinner table. right? You can say thanks. You can give thanksgiving. Um, you can grace someone with your presence. I love that one, right? Oh, how awesome of you to grace us with your presence, you know? You can, I, I don't know, what is that? Bless someone? Uh, something like that? Um, you, can, um, you can find grace in someone's eyes. The Bible usually translates that favor, but it's actually the same word, grace. Um, you can do something gracefully, beautifully, attractively. You can even give and receive grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion. There are many ways to use grace, but the apex, the fullness in essence, is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ, and this is what makes grace utterly unique. This is what makes the Christian faith utterly unique. Freelance writer and self-proclaimed atheist, actually, Jonathan Rauch, says grace is some combination of generosity and magnanimity... Say that five times, I've been trying to say that for so long. Kindness and forgiveness and empathy all above the ordinary call of duty and bestowed even or especially when not particularly earned. Now I actually think this is a really good definition that Jonathan gives and he actually says when he, when he sees it, those rare times he sees it, it almost makes him wish that he wasn't an atheist. Or if we want to put it a little bit more of a, a biblical spin on it real quick, everyone's favorite uh, theologian, right, uh, U2's theologian, Bono, right, <laughs> he really highlights what Lewis talks about. He says, grace is unmerited favor of God, unconditional love given to the undeserving. Now, that's a lot of uns, but those uns are what make this utterly Unique. In Philip Yancey's words, it's scandalous, unmerited, unconditional, undeserved. What? That doesn't even make sense. See, the notion of God's love coming to us unconditionally, with no strings attached, goes against every instinct of the human heart, the Buddhist eightfold The Hindu doctrine of karma, the Muslim law, all of these you earn approval. There's a cosmic scale in which the good is hopefully outweighs the bad. But only in Jesus is there unconditional love, grace. See, we're naturally drawn as humans. We're drawn to contracts and karma to cause and effect to earning our keep and if you don't believe me, all you need to do is go out to lunch with a friend today after church, and if they offer, let them pay your bill. You know you're gonna make it up to them, right? Next time, next week, you know you're, who's not gonna make it up to them? Who's not gonna make it up to, okay. No hands, one person. We got one person. Ladies and gentlemen, you do not wanna go out to lunch with them. And here's why. Because Liam understands grace too well. Really though, really though, come on. This kind of contractual tit-for-tat system of relationships is our default. Especially here in Western democracies with our rigid individualism, right? It's become a crisis. Sociologists have traced that as we have sought for more meaning and significance, traditionally found in the family and the community, um, in the individual and their work, Not only are we seeing a decrease in historically grace-based relationships, covenantal relationships such as marriage, but marketplace language has crept into the common vernacular of our everyday relationships. The word consumers comes to mind. In the official language of the state, I work at a group home for boys that have aged out of the foster system. Just wrap your mind around that for a moment. In the official language of the state, they are consumers. And yet, leadership theorists are finally realizing the benefits of what they call transformational leadership over and above the traditional transactional leadership. See, the problem with transactional leadership or indeed transactional relationships is that there's no power to affect change in anybody. Confucius wrote, Never do to others what you would not like them to do to you. Now, that's very noble, but it doesn't empower you to actually do anything. In contrast, 2,000 years ago, grace appeared in Jesus Christ and turned the whole system upside down, embodied in one simple phrase, do unto others as you would have them do Unto you, This is a revolutionary, unprecedented way of viewing relationships, and its foundation is grace. Here's where we're going today. Through grace, God turns the traditional system of transactional relationships on its head and instead liberates us to live freely and selflessly for God and for one another. So we've been going through our series, Dan was mentioning, our series on the cross and atonement, and today we we are reaching this key transition. I don't... I don't know why he said it's all gonna be fuzzies because we kind of have to discuss a little bit, you know, a little bit more before we can really get the full emphasis of of grace. But we're gonna flip that page today. It's gonna be beautiful. We're gonna be uh, looking forward to next week, how grace leads us to repentance, discussing all the different facets of what Jesus has actually earned for us on the cross in time to discuss the resurrection for Easter. It's gonna be beautiful. And I have a simple argument or a syllogism. You didn't think you were coming to learn Aristotelian logic today, did you, in church? I'll just stick with argument, is that okay? Simple argument, and our first point or premise is this. Grace is a gift we can't earn. Grace is a gift we can't earn. See, one key aspect of what makes grace grace is that it can't be earned. Paul made this clear in our passage today, Ephesians 2.8. It should be up on the board, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul makes it clear that our salvation is not earned by our good effort or deeds. It's by God's grace. But this is so foreign to our everyday experience. I think some of us, maybe in this room, have, have not fully experienced what it means to be, wow, a child of God in that grace. Or, or worse, or I wouldn't say worse, but, or uh, in another way, you're like me, you're like 10 years deep in this, and because of the life we live, the society we live in, you, you forget. See, and then we end up trying to earn God's approval, His a favor, to try to make ourselves feel worthy of his, his blessing. The problem with this, though, is that it puts the emphasis on our performance, and that is exhausting. We're constantly working and achieving to make our lives feel like it has some worth, because God's grace isn't our lived reality. So instead of marveling at his unmerited goodness, we stress our merits and performance, and it's stressful. Dan commented in my notes this week. We have a teaching team here, and we kind of look at each other's stuff and help each other out. So um, he commented in, our note, in my notes, this is the unconscious driver behind our mental fog and chronic fatigue as a society. This is why we strive and work so hard because there's no categories for grace. There's no categories for forgiveness in our society. It's just cancel, it's just, oh, you messed up? Oh, you're out of here. Worse, because we often forget that grace is this cosmic reality, we start over time relating to one another like the world does. How many of you, show of hands, were ever offered a gift, money, help, and, and someone offered it to you and you're thinking like, there is no way I'm gonna take a gift from you or take money or help from you. Am I the only one who's experienced that? You're like, because you know one time they're gonna pull that card out, right? They're gonna be like, you remember that time? Well, guess what? And they're gonna hold that over your head. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. When people wrong us, we demand repayment. We act like, you need to make this up to me, or I'm going to make you pay for it with my bad attitude. I'm giving you the cold shoulder. Am I the only one that does that? (laughs) This is transactional relationships. This is contractional relationships, but in contrast, the Bible says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, some of us have been severely wronged, and that is another conversation. There's a process of healing to that. But generally speaking, our attitudes to God and others betray our sense of entitlement. If we could be honest for a moment, It is by God's gift that we have life. And it is by his gift that our life is sustained. This very day we have breath in our lungs. And then on top of that, when we sinned, it is by his gift that he has saved us. By all accounts, we live by grace. And above all people, we should be ones who freely give grace, just as it was freely given to us. The Bible says it wasn't grace that we earned, if there was one thing we earned, it was justice for our wrongdoings. Romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What sin earns is death, but salvation is a free gift. And this leads to our second point, or premise. Grace is a gift we don't deserve. If grace, by definition, is unmerited, then it follows naturally that grace is undeserved. But I think this is a little tougher pill for our modern sensibilities to swallow. I hate when someone says like, you don't deserve that. I'm like, what? I'm like instantly offended, you know? And I think that's why consciously or unconsciously, we actually lean more back into that first point, that first premise, where we go, no, Maybe, maybe we can work harder and strive harder and make myself feel worthy. But the Bible is unapologetic. In our passage today, Ephesians 2, verse 1, on the board. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This has got to be the most sobering and provocative assessment of humanity ever written. The only thing we deserve is God's wrath. What? What? See, if we don't accurately diagnose the illness, then we're going to provide superficial remedies. Dan said last week, sin is an illness. It's a congenital illness. It is deep in our blood. Sin is something that uh, we have done, but it's also something that's been done to us. It's the sea in which we live in. As Paul said, we commit sin and transgression, meaning not just sins of commission, but sins of omission. And so, hence, in his climactic summation of sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the intention that we were created in. And there's this trifecta of, of forces, Paul says in that Ephesians passage. There's this trifecta of forces, our own sinful nature, the world with its uh, pressures, of, uh, its beliefs, its values, its judgments, its Relational systems. And then the enemy of our soul, Satan, all of these work together to keep us in bondage, or in Paul's words, dead. Unable to save ourselves. Unable to reach that original standard that we were created in. Micah shared a wonderful testimony last week. And we basically saw in that, that radical, a radical disease takes radical treatment. His father had many different treatments. And at the end, the testimony was, it was nothing short of a miracle that saved his dad, that healed him. And the same is true for our salvation. Science, medicine, money, education, all of these things are are good gifts of grace. And they're exceedingly helpful, but they're not the ultimate Solution, in the hands of fallen humans, yes, they can do tremendous good, but they're also um, used for tremendous evil. Science and technology used to make weapons of, of war, and we're seeing that even unfold now. Sin corrupts, it pollutes, it twists God's good gifts of grace into curses. And the Bible suggests, though, it's not just those things or it's not just those people out there. It's something in here. There's a seed in all of us. We still do and think selfish little things every day that fall short of the standard of love. We're by nature deserving of wrath. Now sounds pretty extreme. I know, right? Doesn't that sound pretty extreme for modern folk? It does me. I'm just going to be honest. And I'm going to let Dan fill this out a little bit more. I'll I'll leave the the hard work on him. He's going to fill this out and discuss this in coming um, sessions. But in simple terms, God's wrath is his anger toward the destruction, destructive effects of sin and evil. I like what Tim Keller mentions. I think we often forget this, you know, that in the West, we have a problem justifying God's God's anger and judgment towards sin, but in the Middle East, they have the exact opposite problem. They have a problem justifying God's love and forgiveness. See, they've experienced so much wrong, so much evil, that it would be unjust for God if he wasn't a God of justice. We must understand that God's the God of all people. He's gonna offend some sensibilities of each culture. God is a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. And sin angers him, it angers him. I remember once, uh, I was in fifth grade, so I was the top of the food chain at my elementary school. And there was a guy in fourth grade who I just thought was so cool. I was kind of jealous of him. He, was so, he had this really nice bleach blonde, spiky hair, and it, it spiked like perfectly, like straight, and I have curly hair. Like, this is the best I can do, <laughs> you know? It, it looks cooler when it's, when it's long, it's kind of curly, but. I was like, man, this guy has the coolest hair, and then he had these big fat Osiris skateboarding shoes, and I was like, man, I want those things, they're so cool. This guy's, and so like, I wanted to be his friend. I wanted to be, I'm like, so I tried to be his friend, you know, I would, I would come and like hang out with him and, and talk to him, and he was in fourth grade, right, and I'm, so I'm trying to be his friend, and he wasn't like rude or anything, he just like, we never became friends, like he just wasn't interested in being my friend, I guess. And I was, like, upset. I was, like, hurt. I was, like, jealous. And I remember, and, and, well, what I started to do, actually, yeah, the seed in me kind of flourished a little more than most of us in this room, so thankful, thankful for you that that didn't happen. For me, it did a little bit, but I remember in fifth grade, I, was, I started bullying this guy, because now I was mad. Now I was jealous. So I would bully him in fifth grade, and I went to school one day, and we had like recess or, or, or you know a little bit of time before a class started. And I went to the playground, and I don't know if I was like walking up to him or something. And all of a sudden, his dad came before me, walked in walked in front of me, and he said, "Don't ever mess with my child again." And I was like, "Okay," <laughs> and I didn't ever again. See, I would question God's love if he wasn't deeply affected by the plight of his children. This dad cared and he, he hated to see his son getting bullied. See, we should take comfort in the fact that God actually hates sin. We should take comfort in that. And some of us have been deeply hurt by the sin of others. And you need to hear today, God hates that. It actually angers him. But if we're also honest, we've all hurt someone, too. We all have been unkind to someone, too. And in that sense, we're all in the same boat. We try to compare ourselves to others, but we're just using a sliding scale. We're falling short of the standard we were originally created to be in. We don't deserve grace. But God, literally in the Greek in verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And here it is, the unmerited favor of God, unconditional love given to the undeserving. In Jesus, grace came to this earth and forever changed the course of history. In Jesus, God became human, and he earned what we couldn't through his perfect, sinless life. On the cross, he traded it for what we deserved, and he bore the wrath of God in our place. Love never skipped a heartbeat. God's unconditional love invaded history, and yet he maintained his justice. It's scandalous. And Why would God do this? It just gets better, guys. Why would God do this? Verse seven, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so the hymn goes, the well-known hymn we all know, When we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when it first begun. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Our third point today is this. Grace is a gift freely given to us in Christ Jesus for our freedom. See, beyond saving us that he might show us his kindness into eternity, Jesus saved us so that we might be truly free. Though we don't deserve it, we can't earn it. Paul ends our passage in verse 10 by saying, by grace, we are God's Handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the sense of this passage is God didn't just save us and leave us as we are. Um, He's recreating in us what has been marred by sin. It is his work to reform in us what we're intended to be, the royal priests that Dan talked about in our very first session here. Good people who do good things and good works. But don't get it twisted. You can't read this passage. Uh, You can still put it up there if you want. Um, You can't read this passage as a transaction, Like, Jesus didn't die for us so that in return, you could offer your obedience to him. That's that's a misreading of this passage. Read it again. By all accounts, it is God's work from beginning to end. We are his handiwork created in Christ, and the good works we do, he prepared them for us. God is recreating in us who we were originally intended to be good people made in his image who sinned and now he is restoring friends god doesn't want anything from you he wants you he wants you he wants the truest and highest you and that's the difference that's grace I love how Paul conveys this same idea in Galatians. Galatians chapter five, verse one, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, it's for the very purpose of our freedom that Christ set us free. He set us free so we would be free. Sadly, though, our culture has so convoluted Freedom. Our culture has defined freedom as solely freedom from. So for some, freedom from financial and social responsibility. Whatever I can do to make the most money, and nobody should be able to tell me how to spend it. The inequalities and social injustices are not my problem, or worse, they don't exist. For others, freedom from the oppressive confines of marriage is just a piece of paper, freedom from the sexual boundaries, freedom from even biological confines. Our culture is defining freedom from anything that would limit my self-autonomy, and that's only negative freedom. What we need is positive freedom, freedom that lives into who we were meant to be. Grace not only frees us from sin and death, but frees us positively to be holy, and loving people as we were created to be. God wants our freedom. Now, this message of freedom and grace, it receives a lot of flack. It receives the same three responses today that it did in the Bible, and that is religious people hate it, libertines abuse it, and the humble are empowered by it. The religious Paul dealt with the Judaizers. Jesus confronted the Pharisees. There's always going to be people who due to their own self-righteousness and misunderstanding undermine or actively detest grace. Some are outside the church and they are legitimately really good people. And honestly, they work too hard to humble themselves before Jesus. Jesus. Others are in the church, none of which are sitting next to you. These people often hurt us the most. They say they love Jesus, they go to church, but for some reason, their, their life still operates out of contracts and transactions, which are ultimately self-protective. They're ultimately a self-centered way of living. They haven't fully experienced how grace transforms and empowers, and unlike Jesus, they're concerned about the law and truth without grace. They're often judgmental. If we can be honest, we've been there sometimes. On the other hand, we have the libertines who abuse grace. For these people, grace is just such an easy target to exploit. They simply don't want to be held accountable for the actions. Unlike the religious who get uh, satisfaction out of rule-keeping, hard work, and religious devotion, libertines get satisfaction from sinful and selfish pleasure. They want God's love and forgiveness without true repentance. As Bonhoeffer said, they mistake free grace to us as cheap grace. But grace is not cheap. It may be free to us, but it cost God everything. And sadly, in our day, Christianity is getting just as bad a rap from this response as it is from the religious. But the third way, the third way is for those of us who know that grace is not cheap, that it is costly. And for them, grace is something that is not taken advantage of, nor something to be ashamed of. For them, grace is the key to liberty. For them, grace is transforming. It's empowering. It allows us to be truly free, free from ourselves and our own selfishness and need to get my way. Free to love God and to love others unconditionally before grace, we weren't free. We were bound by our own selfishness. Bound by the need to get the longer end of the stick or at least get even, right? But now, we're free to love God and others when they haven't earned it, even when they don't deserve it. That's freedom. That's grace. If I can be honest as we're gonna land this plane, This message, man, was so good to my soul this week. It kicked my butt. I think I've just, for years, I've just forgot. I just, just, you know, over time we just forget, right? And I think I just forgot, and I've been very ungracious. Been ungracious to my wife this week, she knows. Just like, you're gonna make it up to me, you messed up. I forgot about grace. And I think I understand why Peter's last recorded words were grow in grace, grow in grace. Shua, if you want to come up, I'm going to sum this up real quick. Grace isn't keeping a tally score of wrongs and rights, good deeds and bads. Grace is not holding grudges against others who have disappointed us or being angry because of those who have wronged us. Grace renders the whole system of accounting that allows these feelings of justified anger, unkindness, frustration, judgment, obsolete because it flips it on its head. The world's traditional system of relationships is transactional. You earn grace from God and others. You earn Favor, you are in kindness. You are in support. You are in help. Mercy, forgiveness, value, popularity, power, money, material blessings by the good you do, the good you put in, the hard work you give. The Bible says that's not grace. That's not grace at all. In fact, it's the exact exact opposite. The true system of relationships is rooted in the ultimate reality of God Himself. God gifted us life and every good thing we have on this planet. There is nothing more we could ever earn from him. His love is unconditional. The only thing we could have earned is his anger towards our wrongdoings. And yet even that, he freely absolved by coming as Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We live by grace. And God has freed us to give this same grace to others unconditionally of how they treat us. This is, after all, who you were made to be, perfectly loving. We don't have to. We don't have to. We get to. We get to now. And I mean that in the fullest sense. We're able That's a a, a whole paradigm shift. You tracking with me? That's a whole different way of looking at this. Guys, this is our bread and butter as Christians. This, This is it. This is the bread and butter of following Jesus. Richard Niebuhr, 20th century theologian, says this. The great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically, something that has always been there let's not forget let's grow